You're listening to KE Cast. I'm Andre Goulet. KE Cast is a monthly podcast produced by Korea Exposé. We explore Korean society, culture, and politics, and highlight critical, independent voices you won't find anywhere else. Look for KE Cast on KoreaExpose.com. On this episode, South Korean society's long been intolerant of outsiders, but the outrage sparked this summer by a relatively small number of refugees, there are fewer than a thousand Yemeni asylum seekers on Jeju Island, illustrates how deep the country's xenophobia runs. Korea Exposé publisher Sang Koo joins me to discuss why, despite its vaunted democracy and economy, compassion and humanitarian instincts are in short supply in South Korea. Hi Sang Hello there. I want to begin our conversation by discussing Yemen, where 22 million people, that's 80% of the country's population, need humanitarian aid, where aid workers warn that supplies are low. Current food stocks are at only 40% of what the country's citizens need to survive. Access to fuel is just 16% of what's required to keep the country operating. And where without enough fuel, things like hospital generators will be useless. Water systems requiring pumps will start breaking down and the risk of another cholera outbreak will emerge. Uh, in the summer of 2017, 400,000 Yemenis contracted cholera in an outbreak that killed almost 2,000 people. So with things as they are today, it would only take two or three days of no access to water for everything to fall apart in Yemen. And this is in a country where summer temperatures average 40 degrees Celsius. So saying the Yemen conflict is a brutal humanitarian crisis, isn't it? Yes, I have to agree with you, Andre. This is a very critical situation, but it's also one that many members of the South Korean public simply do not seem to be aware of because there has been a lack of real international reporting that highlights humanitarian disasters outside this country. Koreans are certainly very informed people. They're also very well-educated people as a whole. But international affair has not been something that either the domestic media or the domestic population has really shown a very keen interest in. And just to talk a little bit more about uh, how things look in Yemen and have looked over the last several years. So 55,000 civilians have died since the conflict really escalated in 2015. And more than 3 million Yemenis are displaced. And this is out of a population of about 27 million people. Airstrikes and a naval blockade imposed by coalition forces beginning in 2015 have pushed the country to the brink of famine. And the geopolitics behind it is really weird. These so-called coalition forces are led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Both countries have conducted airstrikes on Yemen and Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Morocco, Sudan, Jordan and Egypt have contributed to the operations while the UK and the United States provide logistical support. So it's a really strange combination of allies. What should the collaborative destruction of Yemen signal to us in terms of this cooperation we're seeing? I can comment only to the extent of what I know. This is a... I mean, this is a real. This is a conflict that really shows the the Sunni Shia divide in the in the in the Islam world, Islamic world rather. 
um, with the Saudi Arabia kind of seeing itself as the leader of the Sunni Islam community, getting support from its uh, other Sunni allies, and not to mention the allies in the Western world, going against the, the, the Shia Houthi rebels who seem to be on the verge of taking control of the country. And that was seen very much as a threat by Saudi Arabia and the, uh, the United Arab Emirates. And, and, and that's exactly what's turned into this conflict that we're seeing today. Yeah, and just to, to explore the roots of the crisis a little more, basically there's two factions and each of them claim to constitute the Yemeni government. Uh, so the civil war unfolded over several years, beginning in the Arab Spring in 2011. Basically, pro-democracy protesters took to the streets. They were trying to uh, force the president at that time, Ali Abed Allah, Saleh to end his 33-year rule. He made concessions economically, did not resign. Tensions on the streets of the capital city, Sana'a, exploded. Protesters died at the hands of the military. Then a prominent military commander backed the opposition, paving the way for deadly clashes between government troops and tribal militias. Um, there was an internationally brokered peace deal, and Yemen finally saw a transfer of power in 2013 to Vice President Abed Rabo Mansour Hadi, and then that led to elections the next year, but Hadi was the only candidate. He attempted constitutional and budget reforms, but this sparked an outcry from Houthi rebels in the north of the country. By September of 2014, Houthi insurgents had taken the capital city. Hadi relocated his government to the southern port city of Aden. And uh, that's kind of how the split happened. Um, other factions entangled in the civil war include Al-Qaeda and ISIS. But basically, it's the Saudi-led pro-Hadi coalition. And anti-government forces are led by the Houthis. They're backed by former President Saleh. So all of this is to bring us to Jeju Island and the nearly 1,000 Yemeni asylum seekers who were basically trapped on the island What's the immigration process when landing on Jeju? Well, Jeju is a special island here in South Korea. It's considered a real tourist zone. And um, unlike on the mainland of South Korea in Jeju, uh, many people, foreigners from different countries, are able to land without a visa and stay for a specific period as long as they're not here to make money. And that's certainly the arrangement that was available to the Yemenis until recently. Yeah, Jeju has a population of 660,000, but sees more than a million tourists visiting the island every month. Uh, this is primarily Chinese tour groups. And my full disclosure is that I lived on Jeju in 2014 and 2015. And the number of tourists visiting Jeju really exploded over the last 10 years or so, hasn't it? Absolutely. But keep in mind that it's not just the Chinese. Uh, it's also very popular with South Koreans, too. It's very close to the mainland. Um, it takes about 40 minutes by flight to go from Seoul to the main airport on the island. But that said, um, certainly Chinese have been a very visible community here. Um, they have also been buying up real estate, much to the consternation of South Korean citizens. And there has been a lot of bu anger building up over the years against uh, Chinese in particular, but in a way about this kind of nebulous entity that you might call foreigners as a whole. So nearly a thousand Yemeni asylum seekers have arrived on Jeju under the previous no visa program. And this was a program instituted with the intention of promoting tourism. 
Daryl Coote, in his June piece at koreaexpose.com titled Yemeni Refugees Languish on South Korea's Holiday Island, explains the origins of the crisis really clearly. He, he writes that basically many Yemenis uh, were in Malaysia as refugees because it's one of the only countries they can go to without a visa, but the government there isn't a member of the 1951 Refugee Convention and doesn't offer an administrative framework to govern refugees and their rights. South Korea is a member of the convention, and um, in Malaysia, refugees are at a constant risk of arrest, detention, exploitation. So in December 2017, when low-cost carrier Air Asia opened a new flight route directly from Kuala Lumpur to Jeju City, Yemeni asylum seekers suddenly had this easily accessible, no-visa, asylum-granting, safe haven open up. Um, the Moon Jae-in governments banned these asylum seekers from leaving the islands for other parts of South Korea and added Yemen to a list of countries whose nationals can't enter Jeju without a visa. So these hundreds of refugees are just in a kind of stateless limbo on Jeju. Is that right? Absolutely. What makes it so difficult for the asylum seekers on Jeju is not only that they don't have the freedom to leave the island, but also that there are very limited employment opportunities for them. Keep in mind that asylum seekers do not have unlimited funds. Uh, once they arrive, they need to make money, they need to pay for lodging, food. And, and their understanding was that they would be able to find these opportunities, particularly in Seoul, where there is an established Yemeni community. But in Jeju, without any kind of community support, they have been languishing. And also they have been finding extraordinary difficulties in finding any kind of job. Uh, granted due to language barriers, but also because of incredible kind of negative reportage that we have seen in domestic media about them, which has then in turn led to reluctance on the part of the natives to give them a chance in the first place. Mm -hmm. Let's move to the mainland now. Uh, a protest in downtown Seoul in late June was organized by a group calling themselves the People's Solidarity Against Illegal Asylum Seekers, and they called for government measures to fend off, quote, fake refugees. One participant at the rally claimed that we don't reject those who seek asylum for religious, political, and racial reasons. We want to see a system that screens out migrants who take advantage of the asylum program for economic gain. And this trope of like the sneaky greedy refugee who wants to exploit the system is really weird i mean is it fair to call what's happening today a crisis of illegal asylum seekers or is it a lot of hype well i mean you mentioned the numbers but let's revisit them again you said there are about thousand yemeni asylum seekers in south korea uh, we're looking at about 550 of them who arrived in South Korea since January of this year. Um, that's not a big number, but at least in the perspective of the South Korean public, it really came as a shock because um, they didn't quite realize that South Korea could be a desirable destination for outsiders seeking safety and security. And that's when we began to see this rhetoric about fake refugees but then again, this is intimately connected to the kind of rhetoric or discourse we have been seeing in South Korea about migrant workers, too. Um, so Korean economy has come to a point where it does defend 
depend significantly on migrant labor. But if you are to go by the kind of rhetoric surrounding this, this community or this group in domestic media or in cyberspace, it's clear that the attitude of Koreans as a whole is not one of welcome. Um, there's anger that these are foreigners are coming and taking advantage of the Korean economy and taking jobs away from the citizens. So that kind of rhetoric is certainly being applied to the refugees, even though the number, as you have said, is still quite small. Mm -hmm. Some chants at the protest included, our people first, we want safety, abolish no visa policy, and um, for whom does this country exist? So this is pretty xenophobic. Uh, half a million South Koreans petitioned President Moon to turn away all refugees. You, you wrote about what you call South Korea's enduring racism in an op-ed at the New York Times uh, last month, where you say that online platforms have become grounds for refugee bashing. So how ugly is anti-refugee sentiment online in Korea? Um, just to clarify one thing first, uh, we're looking more and more like 700,000 people who have signed the petition against refugees. The number certainly has grown since uh, beginning of July when I wrote that opinion piece in the New York Times. Um, you mentioned the anger or hatred toward refugees in cyberspace. Um, it's absolutely true. I think um, Korea is a country that allows a lot of freedom of expression. And I think that is something that we should certainly celebrate. But what, has also, what that has also meant is that cyberspace has also become the breeding ground for a lot of hateful expressions, not just toward refugees, but for against all kinds of uh, minorities or marginalized groups, uh, whether it be women, people who come from specific parts of the country, the disabled, the LGBT people. And, and now it seems that the refugees or foreigners certainly have become one of the favorite targets. The outrage that's been triggered by this relatively small number of Yemeni asylum seekers arriving in the country kind of reveals how deep this South Korean tendency towards xenophobia runs. Uh, can you explore that a little more? So as, a, as someone who was born in South Korea and grew up here, went to school here, I can certainly tell you that the kind of thing that you learn in school is the belief that this is a homogeneous nation. I'm, I know that this is something that is also repeated in foreign media too, but, but whether that's true or not is something that's actually up for debate. But certainly the Koreans themselves have been led to believe that this is true, that to qualify as Korean, you must be ethnically, linguistically, culturally Korean, and that it means um, if should others who come do not fit into this kind of category, that we need to see them with a certain amount of healthy suspicion and perhaps even try to keep them out. Um, I think a lot of Koreans have said in the last several weeks that there's a historical reason for this. Korea is a country that has been attacked by foreign powers for centuries, if not longer and there's a legitimate reason why Koreans fear an influx of foreigners. But I think they unfortunately particularize their own situation and they don't really take into consideration the fact that this is something that applies to just about every country in the world, not just Korea. And that the myth of the ethnic homogeneity itself is uh, very much a construct. It is something that is simply not supported by, by science or history. 
Daniel Minjok, the myth of racial purity in South Korea is just that, a myth. And in recent years, we're seeing an increase in the number of interracial marriages between particularly South Korean men and women from other parts of Asia. And this has seen the South Korean government promoting the idea of Damunhwa, literally multiculturalism, but you see the way that multiculturalism is defined by the government and by society in South Korea as problematic. Why is that? Well, absolutely, it's problematic concept because multiculturalism in Korea does not mean acceptance of cultures that are different from the Korean one. It's about assimilating them and ensuring that those who are outsiders who come here must assimilate to the way that Koreans do things, um, speaking the language and identifying as Korean, learning to, in the case of migrant women who marry Korean men, make kimchi correctly, behaving toward their in-laws in the way that Korean women would. And this comes very much at the expense of migrants' own cultural identities, which could be incorporated into the cultural fabric of this society, but completely ignored and erased. And what's interesting in Korea is that even though the government seems to be, at least on the surface, pushing this uh, paradigm of multiculturalism, uh, this uh, intolerance has been growing, especially among the younger generation. According to at least one global attitude survey that has been conducted in the last several years of 20 different countries that have been surveyed around the world, young people in Korea were found to be most intolerant of foreigners and least accepting of foreigners who want to move here for work or for any other reason. And this attitude has also been confirmed in a domestic survey showing that actually people in their 20s and 30s were more opposed to Yemeni refugees than any other age brackets in Korea. That's really interesting. I, 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 to look at the counter rally against the xenophobic rally in Seoul in July, I, I, I thought it would be a generational uh, support of, of uh, asylum seekers. The, the rally appeared to be made up of primarily university-aged students. Uh, so that's not, that, that's not accurate. No. Uh, in fact, I was at this rally, the first one that took place uh, in the beginning of July. And I can tell you that the organized themselves <laughs> appeared to be in their 20s or 30s. And there was a sizable presence of young people which was something that I had never really expected before going because this kind of conservative, conservative stance is something that I think many listeners too would associate with perhaps um, um, older people. But in Korea, this seems to be an attitude that cuts across um, the democracy of the age spectrum. You write that the arrival of Yemeni asylum seekers coincides with this worsening climate of hate in the country. And you identify a rise in misogyny, partly in reaction to women's more forceful demands for gender equality. Um, the nation has a powerful evangelical lobby whose political allies spread Islamophobia, who organize against LGBT rights. I mean, President Moon he once worked as a human rights lawyer. Is he seen as an ally in the fight against reactionary sentiment in South Korea? No, absolutely not. I think we have, be, um, we have to be clear that based on the kind of actions that have been taken by his government since he took power in 2017, uh, it appears that it's a populist government. And when I say populist, what I mean is it's a government that is incredibly sensitive to the public opinion. 
And even if there's something right that can be done, it will not go against public opinion. So in the case of the refugees, um, it has been very clear that the vast majority of the Korean electorate does not want to give an easy time to these Yemenis. And the government is certainly following suit. So we have heard announcements from the Justice Ministry that they would try very hard to make the process for refugees seeking asylum much more strict than in the past, and that they will deploy more people to expedite this processing process, um, presumably so that the Yemenis can be expelled from the country sooner rather than later. And, and that unfortunately really goes to show that we cannot count on this government to be a very pro-human rights one. Let, let's begin to wrap up on a bit of a more optimistic note. Um, you point out in your piece as well that not all South Koreans are xenophobic. In fact, recent polling shows that 39% support accepting Yemeni refugees. Speaking at June's 2018 Jeju Forum for Peace and Prosperity, popular actor and goodwill ambassador for the United Nations Refugee Agency, Jung Usung pointed out that South Koreans have consistently expressed worries about the repatriation of North Koreans who escaped from their home country into China. The Chinese government repatriates all North Korean escapees if they're caught in China. So uh, he said that it's ironic that some of us call for the repatriation of the Yemenis. If they're sent back home, they will face a detrimental situation which could cost them their lives in the worst case scenario. The remarks were made at a special session about refugees, the global refugee crisis, what we need to know at the Jeju Convention Center on the first day of the three-day annual peace forum. So South Korea, which has never accepted a significant number of refugees, in fact, the country's only accepted 2.5% of refugee applicants in the last 25 years, uh, it's grappling with a unique historical moment. Do you think that this kind of appeal that Jung is making to empathy and compassion could gain traction in South Korea? <laughs> I think you're more of an optimist than I am. Um, Jung Woo-sung is a very brave man for going on the record saying such things because he has faced an incredible backlash because of what he has said about the refugees and, and his very explicit support for them. Um, and considering that he's a celebrity who really lives off public support and popularity, I think it's quite remarkable that he chose to take such a uh, stance. Um, I think we have to accept that people like him are still rare. Uh, I've also talked to a um, human rights lawyer here who has been very active in fighting for the rights of migrant workers and refugees. He's been doing it for the last 14 years. And he said very openly at a, a forum that we hosted a month ago that uh, the fact of the matter is um, this is an uphill battle. Uh, even though he's a human rights expert and he often goes to meet other human rights experts here in South Korea, the attitude he sees from the people is that, one, um, even though they are very interested in fighting for social justice, there are two things that they're extremely reluctant to rally around. One is the issue of foreigners and the other is the issue of homosexuality. Um, these are two issues that are still very much on the margins of even the human rights camp's um, interest in South Korea. And it will take quite some time before I think most people, most members of the public will come around and rally around these issues.
What role do you see Korea Exposé playing in trying to disseminate some new ideas uh, and some more compassionate or empathetic ideas for how to perceive Korean society? Uh, Let me put it this way. Our goal is to show that there is a clear discrepancy between the way perhaps uh, many South Koreans look at certain issues and the way that people outside this country look at those same issues. And by highlighting that discrepancy, I would like to believe that there can be some narrowing of the two positions. And perhaps in narrowing those positions, we can arrive at understanding and perhaps a solution. That's what I hope for. On June 11th, the Jeju Immigration Office announced that they would issue work permits for Yemeni asylum seekers effective immediately, waiving the usual six-month wait period. But most Yemenis continue to face a grim daily reality. Finding a job can take weeks, and in that time, more of the refugees will become homeless. They, they need places to stay. They need money, and the travel ban off the island is still in place. How do you see the situation playing itself out over the coming months? Well, I'm not sure if we're really going to get that far, because if we go by the government's or rather the justice ministry's pledge to expedite the processing, we should have decisions coming out on the fate of these Yemenis quite soon, Um, if not uh, beginning of next month, but certainly by the end of September. And based on what we have already heard in media coverage of the Yemenis who are looking for jobs, the situation is indeed grim. There are not many businesses that are willing to give these people positions, even though they certainly need human power. And in one Korea interview, in an interview with one Korea media outlet, uh, uh, one asylum seeker actually came out and said, Korea is more hellish than Yemen, which which is um, quite a thing to say, if you ask me. Uh, You're not optimistic about where things will go over the next few months. I would just say that I'm glad that this um, this uh, controversy erupted because it really created an opening to have some kind of discussion or debate. And I have to say this is really only the beginning. Um, and we have to keep in mind that, in fact, people, the number of those who are applying for asylum here in South Korea has risen dramatically. Uh, in 2009, I believe it was, we were really only looking at a few hundreds. Last year, in 2017, there were almost 10,000 people applying for asylum here in South Korea. This issue is not going to go away. The numbers are going to increase. And, and South Korea really will need to uh, deal with it. They will either need to show that as a, a state that has signed onto the United Nations Refugee Convention, it needs to abide by a certain international standard that it has promised to uphold or it's going to show itself to be a compassion-free society that has no concern for others except for those who can really identify as citizens of this country. Seung Koo has taught Korean studies at Stanford, Yale, and at Ewa Women's University in Seoul. He's the founder and publisher of Korea Exposé. Seyun, thanks for speaking with KECast. Thank you so much for having me. That's KECast for this week. This episode was produced by Korea Exposé and myself, Andre Goulet, founder and host of the Korea File podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Andre Mar Goulet for the latest updates on the show. 
Pre-Exposé is an online multimedia startup featuring underreported and critical perspectives from Korea. Find new episodes of KEcast on iTunes and YouTube and on koreaexposé.com. Music on this episode is courtesy of Creative Commons. Our next episode discussing why some conscientious objectors are refusing to serve in the South Korean military will be out in early October. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>